Fitzroy poem. Went for a walk in the Edinburgh Gardens. Saw a tram go whiffling past. Walked down Brunswick Street, past the Punters Club, and into the Black Cat for a cafe latte. Talked about sex and how much we hate Jeff Kennett. Went back to my place and took lots of drugs 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 and took lots of drugs. And because I'm so fucking artistic, I wrote a poem about it. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name is Alice. I have a lot to unpack before I begin this episode, which is one that's taken about a year for me to put together. Before I go any further, I want to say that pretty early on there's going to be some strong language, so if you're listening in the car with the kids, then maybe save this one for a little bit later. And I've actually written my introduction, which I don't usually do, just to make sure I get everything out before we begin. So, this episode began over a year ago. My cousin, Bridget Mackey, who happens to be an incredible playwright, invited us to see her play Fool's Gold at the Melbourne Fringe Festival. As Bridget will explain in a moment, the play looked at the complex relationships we have with our artistic heroes people whose work shapes our lives in subtle and sometimes overt ways. For Bridget, one of these heroes is the poet Adam Ford. Adam is the author of a book called Not Quite the Man for the Job, which was published by Allen & Unwin in 1998, along with the novel Man Bites Dog, the collection The Third Fruit is a Bird, and others. Not Quite the Man for the Job is a Melbourne book. It's a 90s book, a beautiful and fun book of poetry. It had wide distribution after it was published, and it found its way to Bridget, a budding poetry fan living in Canberra. When Bridget heard Adam was coming to Canberra, she talked her way into his workshop, which was for primary school students. She was 15 at the time. In Fool's Gold, Bridget takes on her relationship to this hero in full force. A pivotal moment in this play is Bridget standing in front of a microphone centre stage, reading a poem that includes lines like this. Fuck you, Adam Ford. I'm still here in Melbourne, 3072. But it's not about where you live. It's about where you fuck. And I've been doing a lot of fucking in Fitzroy. A lot of fucking and drinking and drunken bike riding. And are you proud of me? Maybe. Fuck you, Adam Ford. You balding, bearded garden gnome of a hero. Though the poem sounds like an attack on Adam, it's more an attack on the self. Bridget is angry with herself for becoming someone who, in her own words, now lives inside an Adam Ford poem. The late nights, the trams, even the same bike routes. It's just so cliche. As it turned out, someone in the audience the night we saw Fool's Gold knew Adam, messaged him and told him he had to come and see the play. That didn't end up happening, but on the night, in all the post-show excitement, Bridget and I hatched a plan. What if we actually found Adam Ford? What if we read this poem to him? What would he think? Would he get it? Or would he be deeply offended? What followed was less a This American Lifestyle research quest and more a series of very politely worded emails and anxious waits. We found Adam. He read the poem. He didn't threaten legal action or even get angry. In fact, he was incredibly generous. Before we get to any of that, Here's Bridget and I gearing up for our visit with Adam. We all sort of had common heroes like Nico and Leonard Cohen and yeah, just sort of poets and musicians and talking about the people that inspired us to move to Melbourne because we're all from other places. Mm. Um, and one of my heroes was the poet Adam Ford. Because you moved down here, what? when did you move down? Um, when I was 18, I moved here for a year. Mm. Then I was in Adelaide for four years. Then I came back here. Yeah, right. So I've been here for nearly 10, ten years. Yeah. And what are your, like, favourite... What's your, like, quintessential, like, Melbourne bohemian lifestyle memory? Ooh. Um... So many. <laughs> Every <laughs> single day of my life. Well, <laughs> I remember I thought 
I, I, like I used to work on the door at the Evelyn when I was 18 and I remember thinking that was pretty um, cool. Yeah. Like I work on the coolest street in the world um, and I get to... <laughs> You get to say choose whether or, or not people come in or not, and sometimes people gave me like presents of like weed or like <laughs> really <laughs> just whatever they had in their pockets. Yeah, right. Um, and this is the Evelyn on Brunswick. Oh, the Evelyn Street. on Brunswick Street. So I yeah. thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I got to go to cool parties and hang out with cool bands. Um. Yeah, but there was a weird like shift between. Like when I was younger, being a groupie and like attaching myself to other people's art. Mm. And then when I was about 25, I was like, I think I need to make my own art now. Um, but I guess like it is a wonderfully artistic city where you can do everything, something every night of the week. Mm. As opposed to where we both grew up. Yeah. I'm trying to think like the most bohemian thing I did in Canberra. Um, yeah, we're, we're very lucky that we get to be here for sure. I think that's something else that fascinates me too living here is meeting people who have who were born here and who continued to live here like they never felt the need to leave um, and find another community. And... Um, I just always wonder, like, do you guys get it? Like, do you know what it means to be here? Like, I know. Well, yeah. yeah. Drew grew up in Coburg and he's often like, oh, yeah, that cool person. I went to school with them. Like, not in like a braggy way, but it's just yeah. like, I'm like, you don't get it. <laughs> just don't understand. Get together. Yeah, we're going to go meet Adam. Next Monday, we're going to get in the car and drive out to his place. Very exciting. Yeah. And, yeah, I think the plan is that you're going to read the poem out of Fool's Gold yeah. to him. Yeah. <laughs> but I also just want to let him know that how much I loved his poems. Like, they were so meaningful mm. to 16-year-old me. Like, they invaded my life. <laughs> yeah. I want to let him know that. I feel like I'm going to cry talking about it, but if I cry, I'll just cry. Yeah. Um, You're in a safe place. <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, I don't even know how, like... I don't know how I got that book, but someone gave it to me. Mm. And I don't, I mean, obviously they're good poems, so that's why it, like, affected me. But there was just something about your poems and, like, everything in them that I was like, wow, if I want my life to be like anything, I want it to be like that. Okay. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know. And if I had to, um, I guess there were kind of... Ex- accessible to me but also portrayed a lifestyle that I maybe that wasn't Canberra right that was pubs and freedom and music and love and all those things Mm. um yeah but it was really like I mean you can see from my copy how much I love it (laughs) but um if I had to do like an assignment at school I would like choose one of your poems if I had to do like um, a presentation <laughs> in drama. Um, I mean, I would learn a poem. Um, my MSN name on MSN Messenger was Kevin the Fucked Up Goldfish. You you mentioned that in the email. <laughs> so that um, was so um, yeah. Like I just it's very strange to meet you, <laughs> like again as an adult, yeah. and just be like I don't. I think like I reached a point after I'd, when I was like 27 or something, where I was like, maybe just moving house and came across your book. And I was like, oh my God, I'm living in this book now. I ride my bike along the Merry Creek and I shop at Pierre de Monti's and I'm going to meet someone for a drink at the Black Cat. And then I was like, 
is it coincidence or did I (laughs) design my life like this? Um, but, um, yeah. So well, that makes sense to me. I grew up in a little country town, uh, Ballarat, big country town for the people Mm. from Ballarat who are listening, but you know, a, a country town and there was the aspirational thing of Melbourne there as well and I, I felt like there were a lot of uh, I've spent some time in Canberra and I felt like there were some similarities between the two places mm-hmm. I, I think I know what you're talking about like the attraction of that lifestyle yeah and um, I think that's one of the things that uh, I was shouting from the rooftops when I was writing that poem is like oh my god <laughs> you know we get to do this and yeah. no one is telling us not to do this <laughs> and it's awesome <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah, but it was, yes, so it was with that enthusiasm for that lifestyle that I fangirl talked my way into a workshop in Canberra <laughs> in the year 2000 Yeah. that I think was intended for children. We decided earlier it was. I very much remember it, yeah, that yeah. it was a primary school workshop. Yeah, it was a primary school <laughs> workshop and I was 15. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow they let me do it. Uh, and then I remember there was, you gave a poetry reading in, like, within the artworks it's mm-hmm. themselves, and I got a coughing fit, and you had to stop reading and say, are you okay? And it was, like, mortifying. Oh, was I nice? You were really nice. I'm really sorry. You were really I, nice. I no, you were really nice, but I was just, like, I think the coughing got worse, because I was, like, I don't want to leave. I don't yeah. want to, you know, I don't even want to clear my throat. I was an awkward teenager. I'm just, like, I'll just be really quiet, but it just... Um, ended up making the coughing fit far west yeah. than otherwise would be. Did you leave in the end? Or? I think like my eyes were watering. You said, are you okay? And then I think my mum was there with me. So I think that she just went and got me some water. Oh. <laughs> Brutal. I know. And did you introduce yourself afterwards? I don't... Well, I must have. I mean, you signed my book. I'm so sorry I don't have any more specific memories. <laughs> I feel really like I've let you down. No, it's like but... kind of comforting in a way. That you don't remember me in the workshop. You said maybe you vaguely remember. It rang me in the a bell workshop. that you were in the workshop. Yes, and did we talk in the workshop? Like, um, maybe in I... terms of like just discussing the the tasks and things like that. I have a memory of there being someone in the workshop that I felt like I didn't have to talk down to quite so much. <laughs> that I could um, speak as an equal. Like that the explanations didn't need to be primary schooled up a bit. That, that really rang a bell for me. But what I was going to say is I have no memory of being completely offended by a spluttering girl in front okay. of me. At, so <laughs> Okay, well, that's I comforting. Think, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah. I, rem- I, don't, I don't really remember the workshop. Like, I mean, I remember, like, writing on big sheets of paper mm. um, and maybe feeling slightly embarrassed that I was there with all the primary school kids but excited to be there yeah. with you. I'm just yeah. so impressed. I think it's great. <laughs> I love that. I love the gumption that um, that you showed there. You know, you knew what you wanted. You went out and you, yeah. you asked for it and you got it. I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah no way I would have had the guts to do that. <laughs> yeah. There's so many people would have gone, nah, but you know. I guess I, I also had the type of parents that would be like, cool, I'll help you talk your way into that workshop. <laughs> that's lovely. Yeah. I mean, I've tried that kind of stuff with, um, people whose work I admire and pretty much abjectly failed almost every time and um, yeah they're the kind of memories that I sort of that wake you just as you're falling asleep those sort of embarrassment things um, so I know what that I know what that's like <laughs> and you got what you wanted out of it so I think kudos mm. to you um, yeah yeah and I think as poetry people we're sort of awkward as a race God, yeah. So we tend to, I mean, the interactions I've had through this podcast have been so healing because it's been uh, the opportunity to really sit down and have a proper conversation. But nine times out of 10, when you meet someone in poetry, you're meeting at a launch or a reading mm. and they're just so fraught. There's such fraught environments to have. Yeah. And often you do want to say like, oh, I I just need to tell you that this poem means yeah. so much. And what mm. you're, you know... But also, if you're if you're a poet or creative person too, 
I don't know. It's a very, it's a very strange, strange ground to tread. You mm. want to, for me, when when I've kind of initiated those sort of things, it's like I want to be acknowledged or recognised as you know an, an equal or a compatriot mm. at arms in some way. But the way that you initiate the relationship is necessarily a little subservient and particularly if it's someone with some profile they will probably be expecting that as well and have a series of pat responses that are nice and polite but not a genuinely engaging thing and you want to get past that Mm. and it's very hard to do that without crossing the stalkery line no no I really (laughs) and it's I really like yeah I went to see Laurie Anderson perform earlier this year Mm. at the Gold Coast. Mm. Um, I booked a ticket at the last minute. I flew up. I almost missed the plane. Basically had to run to make the gig. And I I was there for the weekend staying in some terrible backpackers. And the whole point was basically because I was hoping that there might be some opportunity to, um, besides seeing the shows live, that there might be some opportunity to meet her and tell her how much her work had meant to me and hand her a copy of my poetry book. And mm. I spent the whole weekend trying to do it. I had a friend who was writing about it for one of the local newspapers, in, uh, a Sydney newspaper, so she was there to cover it for the weekend. She um, got to go backstage a couple of times. She did a Tai Chi class that Laurie taught on the <laughs> banks of the river, the Brisbane River. Um, uh, she went to the opening thing. So she spent the whole weekend with her. I spent that entire weekend trying to somehow work out how I could be close enough to my friend to get into any doors. And every door I tried to pass the book through, but everybody said, no, no, everybody was very protective of her. I never Mm. saw her. I never stood in front of her. I never did anything. I ended up handing a copy of my book to a roadie who said that he would probably be able to give it to her, but she was very tired after the show. And then I had to go all the way home and it was... It was really hard. Mm. It was a really mm. hard experience because I felt, I felt crazy, mm. but I also felt like compelled that I mm. had to do it. So, <laughs> yeah. a long way of saying, not trying to draw too many parallels between this situation, but a long way to sort of saying, I know what that's, <laughs> that's like. basis of the play was what who are our role models um who have we modeled our life on and we sort of found there was this common thread of like for want of a better word like scumbag men or like you know like (laughs) um (laughs) like this rock and roll lifestyle that we all came to melbourne for and that we all um yeah i guess accepted without um much thought that this was how we wanted to live Mm. and so this play was a bit of asking what that meant (laughs) questioning what that has what if anything that has meant for how we live our lives yeah and does the play put conclusions out or does it leave it sort of hanging no i think it leaves it hanging a bit because i don't think we we don't really know you know um i guess we We think that it, or I think that those um, male poets <laughs> have influenced me in positive and negative yeah. ways. I know what you're talking about. I know the trope. I know the archetype. Um, uh, there was a uh, an article I read after my novel Man Bites Dog comes out, which kind of is a Fitzroy novel in the same way that that's a Fitzroy collection of poetry. Um, it was called the white male fuck up novel, um, which is, was huge in the nineties. And, um, I don't know that I deliberately set out to write one of those or even realized that I was, but, uh, you know, it was after the book came out and I was like, ah, yes, the white male fuck up mm. kind of trope is something that, uh, I was sort of, I guess, living and exploring creatively at the time. Um, mm. yeah, I, yeah, I was... <laughs> really intrigued by that element of the monologue 
that you sent me. I thought it's it's really it is a fair cop. I think there's a. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, there's a lot of obliviousness about the persona in that book, and um, I think it is a little bit of a persona. Like I was saying to you, mm. moving from a country town to Melbourne, and just the freedom and the excitement of Fitzroy in the 90s. Mm. That book is very much a celebration of that. Um, partly aspirational as well. I mean, it's funny hearing you describing that. Something. I think that that's what the book says. But, yeah, it's uh, from my perspective, it's kind of funny for me to be one of those because I used to make fun of those people. <laughs> There's even a character in Man Bites Dog who is that guy we used to call them the Bukowski poets uh-huh yes um and so yeah the protagonist in the novel's best mate is a spoken word poet uh called Wayne who is just yeah just Cod Bukowski terrible terrible man um selfish uh arrogant attractive the whole the whole bit mm-hmm. um so it was kind of funny to sort of get the sense that maybe that book comes across that way because I always kind of saw myself as this sort of lost, whimsical, sentimental man-child. The man-child stuff probably fits quite well. Probably not even a man-child, probably just a lost, whimsical child. Not really sure what to do with himself. Um, interesting. Uh, but, you know, that's the thing. Death of the author. Uh, you know, what you put in is not necessarily what everybody gets out. But I can definitely see that in there. Like I said, mm. fair cop. But some of the, you know, some of the poems were kind of, are obviously like imaginative and whimsical and yeah. I think that captured my attention as well. It wasn't just the rock and roll lifestyle yeah. stuff. It was the fairies in the concrete and the space whale. Oh, I love the space whale. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a big fan. That's, that's oh. my favourite poem from, from that collection. <laughs> I must destroy the space whale. For too long she has blocked the sun. Her cetacean shadow covers this whole town. I've got the perfect weapon. A rocket with a robot brain. I'll point the warhead directly at her heart. I'll watch the flames recede and listen for the sound that says the path is clear once more for satellites. The smell of burning whale meat will fill the air as she comes down. I've got a hole dug deep to hold her tight. The darkness will be lifted. The earth will shake with her defeat. I'll pack the dirt around her smouldering bulk. I'll wipe my dirty hands and walk from where the space whale lies, my mortal enemy finally put to rest. Millions will thank me for what I have done. No one will miss the space whale. can remember the realization when I was a teenager some of my friends started a band and I went to some of their rehearsals and I saw them play in a pub and I was like holy shit people make art I'm a people (laughs) I I could make art up until that point it was like you listened to music on the radio you saw television on the television Mm. theater happened on a stage books were in a bookshop I hadn't made that connection that those people were also people like me until I saw my friends write a song from nothing, get up and perform it, and it was amazing. And it, you could put it on a mixtape next to a song by Icehouse. And, yeah. And they would match in a way. There was there was no, like, this does not belong here kind of stuff. And I still remember having that revelation that, mm. you know, they're people, and I still got, I guess I kind of cling to that. Mm. It's, it's nice. Mm. Have you had, like, other fan girls or boys on the basis of this book i've it's 20 years old yeah, old. But have, yeah. Um, and in that 20 years yeah there's been the odd person has contacted me because they really like it um mm. if i was gonna make a theory about um uh what the appeal of the book is the stories that i hear like when people leave a comment on my blog you know maybe five comments over the last 10 years or something the common story is it was in my school library um, or my year 10 English teacher set a poem um, uh, to study 
uh, and I have really fond memories of that. So these people are having a bit of a nostalgic flash to something that was maybe a little bit different, was a little uh, more interesting to them in English class and things like that. Mm. Um, one girl was like, I stole it from my school library after I finished year 12 because I didn't <laughs> want to give it back. But then I felt guilty and actually went back to the school and gave it back after photocopying all of it. Lots of people asking if it was in print and stuff. And I think it just... Um, Half the print run got bought by a company that puts books in school libraries, and so it had really deep distribution mm. in the in the late nineties in high school libraries across mm. the country. And I think it's just, yeah, it, it's finding people at the right age when they're a little bit hungry for that sort of thing. Year eleven, year twelve, you start getting aspirational. What's next? And in some ways, that was almost what the publisher said about this book and uh, Man Bites Dog as well. They they called it. Um, aspirational young adult or something like that that was about that lifestyle that young people were about to move into so they're curious about reading it and the whole phenomenon Mm. of reading up Uh, a 16 year old won't read books that are Mm. written for a 16 year old Mm. they want to read books that are written for an adult a 14 year old wants to read books for a 16 year old and things like that she said it looks don't you think it looks a lot like rain yeah, it's difficult. It's something that I'm really proud of. It's something that's a bit dated in some ways. It's it's not who I am now. And I think in the last 12 months, I've kind of been thinking a bit more deeply about that. And so that's probably what's resonating with me about that book at the moment is uh, where I was and where I am. Uh, but, you know, as an Australian artist, it's very hard to express pride in your own creation as well. Do you get that? Like, uh, I Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, and, and I've spent a bit of time in America and there's such a difference between, yeah. um, like mostly as an actor, like walking, I did, um, auditions for CBS pilot season, which was quite a big deal. Mm. Um, and talking to like the executives at CBS and they're like, cool, you say you're an actor, you're an actor. Like mm. <laughs> what can we try and get you in as opposed to walking into a casting studio in the suburban Melbourne for like. I don't know, like a wheat big ad. And they're like, you didn't go to NIDA. I don't think we should bother auditioning you. So it was a really strange... Wow. So the like, powers that be are yeah, reinforcing that. Um, yeah, so it was just this real... Um, yes, I think the powers that be are like... In America, if you say that you want... If you say that you are something, even if people... I think just culturally, the reaction to that is, that's great, you're having a go. Yeah. Good on you. Who am I to stop you? I wish you all success. As my wife Anna has said before, she said it must be an interesting experience to have um, had some really tangible success as a published poet um, in your 20s, so Mm -hmm. early in your career too. I'd self-published one collection of poetry and I performed it at the Melbourne Writers Festival as part of a festival of young writers and one of the publishers from Allen and Unwin was there and offered to re-release the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said I would rather... Um, take the best from that and I've got some more poems that aren't in that and sort of put it together and that's where that kind of Mm. volume came from so it was a bit of a whirlwind and there was lots of publicity and there were articles in the age you know speaking as an Australian artist this isn't big noting myself or anything but there was a lot of validation around at the time Um, I got to I got interviewed on Triple J a couple of times Mm. Um, these were all the recordings that I was going through and going look at me look at look at how Mm. how proud I am of all of those achievements and in the time since then the volume of work that I've produced has been a lot smaller um, for various reasons you know life gets in the way we moved to the country we we had two kids you you have to deal with sleep deprivation I got a full-time job I was commuting to Melbourne so there was a lot of not a lot of time to commit to the art and Mm. that can create a certain sense of frustration about why aren't I kind of producing at the same level. It's probably just a story about growing old mm. as well. Um, so, yeah, there's been a lot of thinking around that. But part of, I guess, the conclusion that I came to was that that was then, this is now. None of this is really revelatory in any kind of way, but I'm starting to find, uh, you know, peace in that 
smaller output that um, uh, and also starting to question what the themes are in the things that are driving me to write now and that were driving me to write then and a lot of that stuff was really um, born from the experience it was experiential poetry it was written in the moment about the moment that I was occupying um, and I'm not in that moment anymore and so I can't really write that that kind of stuff anymore mm. so the question for me I guess as a writer is is there something I can take from that and bring into it because I have a lot of love and fondness for that stuff I'm really proud of that book I think it's I think it's a lovely book even, even if I do say so myself mm. so how do I how do I keep that lovely in the new stuff so how do I put it down turn my back on it in a way um, while still honoring it in some way these are the kind of the questions I'm sort of asking myself at the moment um, and I think all that I've concluded out of that is that I am kind of ready to put that in the then pile instead mm. of the now pile mm. um, yeah I, I think just to, like I um, am maybe entering like a next phase of being an artist I think I similarly had a lot of um, like attention when I was a young mm. artist like well I mean I'm yeah, but the, I think there, there is something in our culture where we're always looking for the next new thing. Yeah. And I think people are quite... Um, maybe just, like, our economy doesn't sustain artists' careers. Like, they might in America where you it's more, like, um, philanthropic or yeah. something like that. But I think there is, like... It can be really... Um, create a false sense of uh, security for a, a young artist to have... Yeah. Have all that at the start. Yeah. Um, there's something there's paternalistic no... about it too. Like a young artist is not threatening. A young artist isn't, as you say, going to take as much money mm. um, to sustain. And it's kind of like a, well, they'll they'll do this for the accolades. They'll do this for free. They'll do this for the prizes. Yeah. And then don't worry about like what's going to happen to them after that. In deciding to talk to Adam about Not Quite the Man for the Job, I think both Bridget and I were keenly aware that this book, which was published just over 20 years ago, probably wouldn't represent his current writing practice. As we kept talking, I don't think it surprised either of us to learn that Adam's more recent projects have been markedly different. These days, Adam sets himself poetic goals with ambitious constraints and a strong skew towards science fiction. He's collaborated with other poets on a set of remix poems that reflect the nature of his childhood action figures, robots that can change shape and fit together in different ways. He wrote poems in response to every issue of the 1980s Marvel comic book series Rom Space Night, and most recently he's been working on a spoken word poetry show, which will be part of this year's Castlemaine State Festival, examining the Anticlinal Fold, which is a mysterious rock formation in downtown Castlemaine. Here's Adam talking about finishing the Rom Space Night series of poems. Now I'm sort of trying to work out what to do with that body of work. It was a really nice formal exercise for myself. I really enjoyed setting myself a formal deadline and actually being able to achieve that deadline mm. so that I'd almost come up with a method of writing poems. So in this instance, the theme that was fed into the machine was 75 issues of this comic, but it but it can be applied to anything that I, say, want to write about. If there's a big theme I want to write about, say, I don't know, uh, the seven, uh, the nine planets of the solar system or something like that. So you just set yourself those deadlines. The thing that made it a bit more compulsive for me to do is that I actually wrote them all and published them online. So I was declaring on social media that I was going to do it. So it was kind of like a public writing project. Um, so... Partly trying to work out what to do with that body of work at the moment. I've had about half a dozen of those poems published. There are a few science fiction poetry journals out there in the world, mostly online, mostly based in the States and mm -hmm. Canada, and I've had a few poems published, uh, of those poems published there, which has been great, really mm -hmm. validating, because you drill down to these, could this work, I don't know, and then you end up with this stuff and you don't know if it works. But then when that person that you don't know 
says I like this and I want to publish it and I want to push it out there that's a, that's a really lovely validation so that's kind of what I've been working on at the moment is trying to find home for those it is an interesting thing to have found myself deciding to write um, science fiction poetry because it's almost like you know poetry wasn't niche enough a thing for me to be as an artist to try and get publication maybe I could um, you know make it science fiction poetry and just narrow the field a little bit more but at the same time I'm just I feel like what interests me as a writer is seeing if things can be done um, and so coming up with kind of quaint or quirky ideas and then going well what if we actually pushed that through to the end and saw what the end product was and so that's mm. kind of what I'm interested in a lot more these days is actually seeing things through it's a very end. freeing way to think about like see to see what can be done yeah <laughs> yeah These are the things that have been occupying me of late. Not so much the writing of individual poems at the moment. I feel like I haven't been doing very much actually sitting down and um, writing a poem today or anything like that. That there's mm. these projects that are at the point where they need to find a way to come out into the world if mm. they're going to. So there's been a lot of, I guess, the back end editing, submitting, uh, yeah, trying to get things published, and it's been slow. Um, the robot poem, the combining robot poem, is probably about six or seven years old now, and I've had a few publishers s take a bite and then sit on it for 12 months and then say, no, we can't quite do it because it's quite an ambitious thing. I want it to be a very visual, um, concrete poem. Mm. Um, it probably couldn't be done just in a simple chapbook. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I've been at, mm. but I guess the, the key theme in all of these is that I'm sort of, these days I'm sort of picking something that I want to write about mm -hmm. and then drilling down into it. I don't feel like I've been writing as much spontaneous mm. yeah. poetry. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of something that, uh, speaking of Overland, Toby Fitch said to me when I interviewed him, he was like, if you, if you set yourself the right constraint, you can actually create work quite fast. Mm. And it frees you up in a in a big way, um, which I hadn't thought of before. And I think we do get seduced by the idea of yeah, that kind of in the moment, responsive, yeah. experiential writing as being more authentic and true. Mm. Um, and a project like that, or like um, thinking too of uh, Dave Drayton, who wrote a book with each poem being a uh, about each of the Australian prime ministers. Um, Lovely. And it's, it's a really funny and entertaining book. And, uh, yeah, you just sort of think about that and you're like, well, it's about conceiving and going through with the idea. Yeah. Um, as well as the work itself. Whereas, you know, your traditional collection is like, here's my poem about my mm. mom, my poem about my backyard. <laughs> yeah. And I'm finding that that's sort of... That's presenting its own challenges in a way because I have in the background been trying to like pull together the body of work that um, I've produced over the last 20 years. And um, I did get something together and I showed it to someone and he said this, it's, it's a book of two halves and the two halves are so disparate that they don't really sit together. So the, there was the, I had the idea and I saw it through just the spontaneous poem thing. And then there were a whole bunch of very deliberately written things to science fiction themes and things like that. And he's like, these, yeah, mm. this is not quite mm. uh, sitting together. So mm. look, yeah, it's been, it's been a really interesting time thinking about being a poet and how to do that. But yeah, the constraint thing seems to really appeal to me. I think I'm a bit more of a, I don't know if structuralist is the right word, but I think I like to have a scaffolding to write to and I don't know if that's got something to do with my career as a professional writer where you often get the brief and then you write it mm. and um, there's something quite comforting in that in setting my own briefs and my own deadlines and mm. approaching the poetry in the same way yeah. it's very different from this which was uh, you know carrying notebooks around with you and I had the idea and then just sitting down and scribbling it down mm. the soon and then you know polishing them up in the end that doesn't seem to happen with me much but, um, yeah, those are the three babies that I have at the moment, and I really kind of love them all. This one was published in Going Down Swimming.
had a genre issue oh, okay. uh, called Pigeonhole. It's called As I Lay Dying, and it's written in response to From Space Night issue 7, which was published by Marvel Comics in June 1980. It takes chutzpah, or maybe just desperation, to try to repair a 7-foot-tall, 200-year-old cyborg from space all by yourself with the tools of a small-town mechanic. He sees his face in the pristine chrome of the prone giant's armour, blue in the guttering and sparking of his father's old oxy-torch. Even after the caress of a settling flame, the cyborg's silver skin is safe to touch, skin designed with the naked radiation of space in mind, micrometeoroid impact, the terrible heat of atmospheric re-entry. Skin he has seen resist flame, repel bullets, and reflect otherworldly laser fire. He wonders what it would be like to fly a hundred feet straight up by thinking it, to look down at this town and hide it with one hand outstretched. Imagines what he'd do first if he had a jet pack welded to his back. See if there really are golf balls on the moon. Fly to LA and take in a Miliband show. Visit Russia and dump all of their missiles into the Atlantic, maybe. As it is, he's never been further than Kansas City that time last June. Everything he's ever wanted has been right here. Friends, family, a business built from scratch, a lake to drive to, woods and mountains to hike on weekends, a girl to fall in love with. He tries not to think of the drop-sheeted figure on the workbench behind them, the now still, still warm alien that had tracked them down and somehow managed to short-circuit the cyborg. He'd reacted instinctively, immolating the creature as it stood with its foot in a puddle of Exxon Premium. The smell of ozone and wet dog lingers. He reaches for jumper leads and a battery. At Steve's garage, we'll check your oil, change your wiper fluid, align and balance your wheels, set fire to murdering aliens and jumpstart the giant cyborg who came here to save the planet. All part of our same day service package. And they say goldfish have no memory. Now we come to the pointy end of our discussion with Adam. Bridget and I had come all this way so we couldn't leave before Bridget read her poem from Fool's Gold to Adam and given him the right of reply. Before you hear it, I'll play the poem that Bridget was writing in response to, which you heard at the start, Fitzroy poem. Before the end of the episode, you'll also hear Kevin the Fucked Up Goldfish, which was Bridget's MSN name back in the day, and one last poem from Not Quite the Man for the Job. Fitzroy poem. Went for a walk in the Edinburgh Gardens. Saw a tram go whiffling past. Walked down Brunswick Street, past the Punters Club, and into the Black Cat for a cafe latte. Talked about sex and how much we hate Jeff Kennett. Went back to my place and took lots of drugs 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 and took lots of drugs. And because I'm so fucking artistic, I wrote a poem about it. Sneer at the two girls from out of town. Sorry about not the first <laughs> stanza. I also think I wrote this as a like this was come this poem and perhaps my role in the show in Fringe was about me talking to myself about being too old to be riding around drunkenly on a yeah. bike and living like a twenty four year old when I'm thirty three now. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I think, so, yeah, we've kind of, that's kind of the theme of the discussion in a way, isn't it? Growing up. I know. Yeah. So this was my angry poem where I'm blaming you for the fact that I'm still I'm living so my sorry. life this way. Yeah. An unlikely hero. Fuck you, Adam Ford, you unlikely hero, you balding, bearded garden gnome of a man. Fuck you. Where are you now? In fucking Castle, Maine? Fucking North Northcote? And do you still take a lot of drugs, 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 take a lot of drugs? Are you sitting in a cafe warming your hands on a turmeric latte? Have you traded your Fitzroy goddesses for a wholesome country girl and does she play the ukulele? Maybe. Fuck you, Adam Ford. I'm still here in Melbourne, 3072. But it's not about where you live. It's about where you fuck. And I've been doing a lot of fucking in Fitzroy. A lot of fucking and drinking and drunken bike riding. And are you proud of me? Maybe. Fuck you, Adam Ford. You balding, bearded garden gnome of a hero.
fuck you. So brutal. So, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's so no. mean. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm completely at peace with that. <laughs> Bridget is I'm the not, color I thought... of... I can't even describe this color. It's um, an amazing red. Uh, well, no, I think it's a lovely poem. Thanks. You're, mad, I, you're mad at yourself, though. I'm mad at myself you're in that poem. I know. I can tell. And, <laughs> I, and, yes. Um, yeah. But Glyn, so the, the reason that Glyn contacted you, Adam, I mm. think, was to say, like, we, it's really, you, you'd really benefit from coming to see it <laughs> in the performance. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, like, in the play itself, it's part of this wider discussion of like yeah just questioning all those heroes from yeah rambo onwards yeah yeah i love yeah i love what you're saying about that kind of stuff i think i've done a lot of thinking about those archetypes as well and Mm. sometimes uh i see a little bit of that in these and in in this book and kind of go ooh, okay i thought i was a bit (laughs) more sophisticated than i was at the time there's a there's a but you have to be when you're a young artist because yes. you're like, well, it's only the artists before you that motivate you. So you, yeah. I think you have to be kind of arrogant and like think that you can, that you're Samuel Beckett when you're not. I did think when I read your email when you sent me that to read it, I thought the North Northcote thing was good. I was like, so. I would like to flatter myself that I've stepped away from the Fitzroy cliches, but here I am with two kids in Castle, Maine, which seems to be the next step for so many people. I feel like there's this whole other tree change cliche that I've kind of fallen into as well. You know, going bald, grew a beard, had two kids. You know, yeah. I thought, yeah, no, I, I liked it. Okay. I really liked yeah, it. You don't have to say so generous. That. But, um, Yes, thank you for No, I did. I could, I could see where it was coming from. You gave me the context and everything, and I thought, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's wonderful. <gasps> you know Kevin's real. Really? Yeah, and that, I didn't name him. I was telling my girls about it this morning, and... Um, yeah, he was a... See, I had this aspirational share house growing up in Ballarat. I was like 15 or 16. I lived. Our home address was Ascot Street South in Ballarat. And there was an Ascot Street North as well. Ballarat's kind of grid is organised so that there's a North and a South. And the, they, the numbers are the same. Nine Ascot Street North and Nine Ascot was um, these really cool guys who'd finished high school that was their share house and we were at nine ascot street south (laughs) so we would occasionally get their mail and that would give me an excuse to go and visit them and i knew them a little bit from seeing them play in bands in the pub and some of them were nice to me and some of them weren't but they lived in this filthy withnell and i kind of house this was before i'd ever Mm. seen withnell and i and i just loved being in there Mm. and just they were so cool they smoked drugs and they didn't clean up and that guy didn't wear shoes and they all wear baggy pants and everything smelled like patchouli and I was like, oh, I want this. <laughs> and um, they had this fish called Kevin um, who was in this grassed over fish tank. And um, yeah, I just I remembered him years later and wrote this ode to him. But yeah, his name was Kevin the Fucked Up Goldfish. I, I stole that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the. I guess it's what we were sort of talking about. It was the lifestyle. Mm. And Kevin's kind of yeah. lifestyle. Except for the. Where is it? There it is. Um, yeah. I know he was real. Kevin the fucked up goldfish. He hung there, floating in the murky water, thinking fishy thoughts. He was Kevin the fucked up goldfish. His tank sat on top of the fridge filled with cigarette butts, beer bottle tops, a little red Lego man, gravel from the backyard, and some water. His scales had lost their colour, taking him from sunset to moonrise, a particularly grubby moonrise. His fins had gone too, 
So he just hung there in the bong water of his home, being Kevin the fucked up goldfish. We decided it was time to clean up Kevin's act, so we filled an old ice cream container with water and put him in. We scrubbed the tank, took out all the rubbish, and put in clean gravel and water. His home clean, we put him back inside and sat him on the fridge. He died the next day. Can I ask one question, fan yeah. question? Did your uncle really want you to smoke him when he died? He said that once, yes, he did. Yeah, I didn't. Probably. Did you know that poem from that book? I don't think I remember that line. Which poem is that in? Is it called? It doesn't have a name. Oh, it's like, um, I, can I, I think I remember it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm in love with someone and I smile a lot and it's like being high. I'm high on you. I could cut you out. I could dry you out and cut you up and smoke you. Just like my uncle wants me to smoke him when he dies. Um, I'm alone right now. He's depressed he's, right He's now. depressed right now. Because he's alone right now. And I wonder if he'd feel better if he smoked you. <laughs> Isn't that weird that the words that you wrote are in my head? It is. And that I could say them to you and I've carried them around for 20 years. But it's so nice too. <laughs> so, I, I love that poem. Yeah. I can just it's say this is, this is a lovely conversation. <laughs> this is kind of what you hope for in a way when you put things out there. It's nice. Well, it's, yeah, like I'm not being, like I'm not, yeah, like I genuinely think that every single one of the poems in that book is a part of me. Oh. Yeah. It's okay if you can't stand to let her dance. It's okay, it's your right, come on and take a chance. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Junkle Mackie, the kind of mum who'd always be there for you if you happen to have a coughing fit in front of your favourite poet. Your creative courage is with me every day.